Welcome to the KVB Review Podcast. My name is Andy Davis and this is episode two of season four. Today we're going to look at a couple of opportunities for retailers, or at least things that should be if the way to crack them can only be found. First up, we're talking about the small builder market. Now that's not big contracts or developers, I mean the builders that will do the extensions and the relatively small refurbishments that will almost certainly involve a trip to the single biggest kitchen retailer in the country, Howden's. Can independent retailers get in on some of that action rather than just leaving them to it? And then we're talking sustainability. It's the single biggest issue that will dominate all our lives for the next 20 years. And there's no question it's high on the agenda of manufacturers. But for consumers of kitchens and bathrooms and the retailers that serve them, it just doesn't seem to be registering. And that could be a real problem if the government introduces laws to force them to make it a priority in their projects. So, we've got a panel of bathroom retailers, as well as Tom Reynolds from the Bathroom Manufacturers Association, to talk through just why that interest isn't there and what can be done about it. Hint, not a lot. But first... The KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2022 event is now just six weeks away. No, really, I'm as surprised as you are, and I'm organising the thing. It's the single biggest social and networking event in the KBB calendar and it's on March the 7th at the Hilton Birmingham Metropole. That's the Monday night of the KBB show. You don't want to miss out on the opportunity to share the room with top retailers, top designers, top brands, top influencers, as well as our top celebrity host, Entertainment and the famous Kuka Club after party. You can book individual tickets or tables of 10 at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. Don't miss out and I'll see you there. So, can independent retailers do more to capitalise on the builder's market dominated by Howden's? Are they missing a trick? Let's talk it through. We have Elizabeth Pantling-Jones, who is the MD of Lima Kitchens in Milton Keynes, friend of the podcast. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. This is such an interesting topic, actually, as we talk a lot about retailers like you uh, working with architects and developers, but we never really talk about the the builders market, probably because Howden's seem to have it all tied up. These are the smaller builders, I suppose, aren't they, that do, you know, they do the extension and the kitchen as opposed to doing like a 50 unit block of flats or whatever. What's the difference from your point of view as the retailer between that contract work and builders? I think for us here, we've looked down the contract route and just feel that the the terms that contracts expect to come with are something that we are not uh, comfortable accommodating. But when it comes to small independent builders who may want one kitchen a month, it's a lot easier to manage. They're more willing to go along with our payment terms and the way that we work. And they appreciate the extra service and quality that we offer. But it is reaching them that that tends to be the problem because a lot of builders don't realize that they have an option and just have their contracts with Howden's and occasionally maybe with Crown or with Magnet as well. Yeah, as you say, it's it's, it's all, I mean, I hesitate to use the word monopoly because that has lots of connotations to it, but yeah, monopoly with a small M, Howden's really have that market. They have 27% share of all consumer spending on kitchens, which of course is absolutely enormous. So what are the main blocks then? You talk about payment terms there, and we did an episode on this recently, of course. But the obvious difference is consumers pay most of the money up front before anything arrives on the doorstep, but builders tend to work on account and therefore pay 30 days or whatever afterwards. You said there that they agree with your payment terms. How does that actually work? How do you go around that? 
does tend to um, be a little bit difficult because they are used to the 30-day turnaround payment terms on there. On some occasions, we've managed it by taking payment on delivery and then payment on template of worktop. So they have slightly longer terms to work with. However, we just explained to them being an independent and smaller business that we we can't offer that. And with them understanding and working in that same way, um, we tend to find that they're happy to adhere to our terms. How does that relationship actually work with the consumer? Do you then design with the consumer? Is the builder always in between you and the homeowner? How does it work? So we've worked on both scenarios there. So we've had people come in with plans and ask us to render and price them, offer some suggestions and then go via the builder. Um, We've also had some builders who prefer to send their clients in and deal with us directly and sometimes get more of a kickback rather than managing that themselves. So we have two, two ways of managing that here. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose every case is absolutely different because everybody's ordering something completely different, aren't they? But what I suppose what we're highlighting here is just what a massive market this is and how does have this monopoly. So as you say, the difficult part is turning builders away from the sheer convenience of Howden's, I suppose, isn't it? They sort of back a van up to the to the depot. Where do you even start in enticing them to talk to you? What are the USPs that you can give them that would make their life easier by coming to you? So most of our relationships currently have all been formed from working with them in clients' homes. So we've developed as a business from, we started at MFI, so we followed a similar structure and we've grown into undertaking extensions and redesigning a lot of houses, ground floor layouts. So we work with a lot of builders regularly. And once they've seen the quality of the product and the service, and even sometimes they would contract us to install them to ensure the workmanship as well. We've kind of developed and picked up business from there ongoing. That's always been the best way for us to do that, simply because reaching these people who are busy, just like us, they don't want to look at circulars or take sales phone calls. So that face-to-face interaction um, and hands-on experience with the product has been key. And is it a certain type of job over a certain type of value as well? Not necessarily. So we've worked with kitchens, although I think the days of ten, fifteen thousand pounds for a kitchen have, have gone now. But we have worked on some of those smaller projects as well as your larger uh, renovations and self-build projects as well. Because I suppose the, the appeal of something like Howden's is that your builder will say to you, listen, you want that certain type of kitchen, I can get that cheaper for you if you come through me, uh, and we can do it all as one job. So it's, how does the pricing element of it work in that way? Are, you, are, the, are the rates different? Do you price it up differently? Yeah, we do price it up differently. We accept that if we're going to be selling to a business, we take a smaller profit from it. But also we tend to find that there's less work and input from us overall because there is someone else in that that kind of interaction with the client. And at least 50% of the time it is supply only. So again, that management that we're used to with our end user projects isn't, isn't involved. So that frees up time and gives us opportunity to bring more in. So it gives us the opportunity for volume rather than just large projects. That supply-only element of it makes it a much easier 
project for you to manage definitely but do you offer a kind of the specialist installation part of it i suppose you know the worktops is, is what i'm thinking of in particular the, the bit that your, your average builder isn't necessarily a specialist in so with all of our projects supply only or not and with a builder or um, an end user we will always carry out a survey and offer first fix plans so that people understand the the kind of electricity loads that are required for appliances and things and for our own peace of mind that it's all going to fit and work go together as we would expect so when it comes to specialist areas such as worktop we will never advise anyone to go with a company that wouldn't come and template and fit just because you can't guarantee the finish and the longevity of the work so we would always work with the builder and schedule in things like the templates for them and then the return visits and keep them up to date um, we would also attend those worktop templates and fits as well to make sure that we were happy. At the end of the day, we may not be fitting it, but we still want the pride within our products. Now, the the obvious bit here is the role that your suppliers can play in helping you, because obviously there's there's marketing elements and there's you know, specific products that you know, you've got to differentiate yourself from yourself from the likes of Howards, haven't you? So, so what do you think your suppliers could or should be doing to help you? I think this is really interesting, and it's a point that if any of our suppliers are listening, will know that I've brought up on a few occasions. Many of us are part of premium listings with our suppliers. So if you take appliances, your NEF master partners, for example, and you get similar within the furniture industry. But one of the things that's always kind of niggled at me about the way it's set up with our door manufacturers, for example, is that there's no uh, joint up marketing. And yes, each independent is separate, but using that network to have a joint marketing package just seems sensible to me. We're buying into their product. They're buying into us as specialists of their products. Why would they not shout about that and put that out there for us to help help reach more people and start pulling away from the monopoly of Howden's? We, we could be reaching more builders. We could be jointly helping builders see that they do have options rather than just Howden's out there. And again, with the retail arm as well, just being able to pull together perhaps some of our resources and take more of the market. Yeah, I mean, one of Howden's USPs, and it's a very impressive one, is of course they have an enormous amount of stock. They make it and they have huge warehouses. They haven't had any stock shortages at all through the last two years. And that's a very difficult thing to go up against when you've got a builder who needs something tomorrow. Yeah, it is. But how many of those builders could be planning three, four weeks earlier? For us, we work on a component basis and with UK manufacturers, nine times out of 10, we can turn around furniture in a month. At that point, they're already um, planning electrical points, first fix plumbing. So the designs need to be completed. Pressing the button on the, uh, the order a few weeks earlier shouldn't be a problem for them and will make their clients feel more secure in the long run. Yeah, I suppose you're never really going to target the kind of builder that needs something tomorrow, are you? It's going to be very difficult to win that yeah. kind of business, that's <laughs> yeah. for sure. The ones parked outside Screwfix at 7.30am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they can, they can stay with Screwfix. <laughs> As you say, a big part of this is about volume. 
And obviously, volume is not a problem at the moment because obviously the, the demand is incredibly high. But I think this forward planning element for thinking about when the current demand tails off a little bit of where the opportunities lie to maintain the kind of volumes that you're already doing now. And I think this is such a sort of obvious one, but no one really delves into it in any enormous detail, in any kind of strategic detail because of Howden's. What Howden's do is incredibly impressive, but, you know, there's always opportunities, aren't there? There are, definitely. I think that as an industry, we spend far too much time fighting between each other for the same business. I know that in the area, some of our independent competitors were coming up against a lot. And I, I don't want to be fighting against those. I want to be reaching a wider audience rather than scrambling for things. And I, I, I know this has been touched upon in other, other podcasts and topics previously. But there, there is more of a market and we should be doing more to reach it, I think. Yeah, it's that gap, isn't it, between, as I said right at the top there, that gap between contractors, architects, developers and you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith coming in and wandering in and wanting to buy a kitchen off you. There's that big, enormous, clearly enormous bit in the middle yeah. where they deal directly with builders. And, it's, and, and, and again, it's about turning the builder's mind around to knowing that their lives can be made easier by dealing with someone like you rather than dealing with a depot. Yeah, absolutely. And also the knowledge that we have and support that we can offer the builders ongoing and even recommending them moving forward as well. It's a two-way stream for builder and for us. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I mean, challenging the state's grow is always very difficult, but it's often where the, the biggest opportunities lie, aren't there? So you've got to be prepared to go all in. So that's so I'm, I'm all for this. But look, let's see what happens next. Thank you again, and we'll speak very soon. Thank you. Take care. Let's move on now to sustainability. And we all know it's important as individuals, of course we do, but just how much does it play a part in the everyday life of a retailer? So it's a very warm welcome to Justine Bullock from Ponticlun in South Wales from the Tap End. Hello, Justine. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. We've got Angus Kerr from the Bathroom Company in Edinburgh. Hello, Angus. Hello, everybody. And then we've got Sam Carwell from Bathrooms by Design down here in London. Hello, Sam. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Uh, last but by no means least, we've got Tom Reynolds from the Bathroom Manufacturers Association. Hello, Tom. Good morning. Right, so we've got, we've got a proper full house today. So look, let's start with our retailers, as I think it's pretty clear that I've chosen you for no other reason that your accents make it very easy for listeners to work out who's who. But you also happen to be very accomplished retailers as well. So let's get a bit of background. Justine, let's start with you. Give us a 10-second profile of the tap end. Okay, so we are coming up to about five years old. We have six members of staff, including myself and Linda, who are the directors. And we are just about to start an installation company to go alongside our design and supply company. And that will be happening in January. Right. Uh, Angus, let's go to you. Give us the brief potted history of the bathroom company. We are a 40-year-old company and we now have as a group just over 80 staff in the bathroom company itself we have just under 50 staff. So you know that is a very substantial enterprise that the bathroom company is and very successful you are too. Now Sam give us the history of your company. Yes Bathroom Spy Design we're we're a retailer based in London we have showrooms in Richmond, Brentford and Fulham. Omnichannel so we, we like to serve our customers via the showrooms but then also give them touch points online so that they can dip in and out of the services that we offer 
be it design consultations over a over a video call or face to face one of our showrooms or via one of our trade partners. We, we you know we try and serve them in as, as best way as possible, which is great. So we've got three very different businesses there, which is fantastic. Obviously, all sell bathrooms. That's the bit you have in common. So let's get into this thorny issue of sustainability here, right? We all know it's important. We've all seen COP twenty six. We've all seen your know, orangutans crying on the TV. We all know the reasons why it's important. So I think the best place to start here is with the customer. Justin, let's start with you. What I want to know is, when customers come to you, when they walk through the door and they sit down and go, I want a new bathroom, does this ever come up? Never. I've been doing bathrooms for 15 years. Well, I'm pretty certain I've never had a customer in 15 years centre the discussions around sustainability and eco-friendly choices. Never in 15 years. Right. Sam, what about you? Is that Would you share that experience? Did they ask about water use, anything? Apart from the occasional project, which would be a, a new build where there's you know, water usage requirements, yeah, on the whole, the average renovation projects, we, we don't get that sort of request. There's an occasional conversation around where products are made and not necessarily the ethics of it, but, but people want to know a bit more about the factory and about the, the history of the products and the manufacturing. But... Um, on the whole, it's, it's really not a, a hot tub of discussion. And what about you, Angus? You know, say you've got a big company there, you deal with a lot of contracts and stuff as well, which obviously legislatively you have to talk to people about. But when consumers are coming through that door, do they say, tell me about how much water things use, what the provenance of them is? Do they ask you anything? I would mirror what the others have said as well. The, the topic of sustainability does not come up at all and it would be retailer driven rather than client driven. Tom, you obviously spend an awful lot of your time talking about this with the manufacturers of the products that these guys are selling. Does any of this surprise you? Does any of this depress you? What's your thoughts when you hear that? It's not entirely surprising. We do spend a lot of time on on sustainability as a a trade body and that's been led by our, our members wanting to do more to prove their sustainability credentials, both as corporate entities, but also to customers as well. So it's something where we have a lot of interest and also it's where a lot of policy focus is within government at the moment and they're very keen to encourage through the provision of information consumers to start making more sustainable choices. So it's really really interesting that it doesn't appear to be coming up organically in conversations thus far i think people are very conscious of it in their fmcg purchases if you know what i mean they're very conscious of the packaging of the food in their supermarkets or whatever but clearly when they're making big purchases like this it just doesn't factor in i mean justine as you say no one ever asks you about it how confident would you feel about talking about it if somebody did Yeah, I would feel confident in talking about it. I feel like I know enough about what we should be doing as a company, but I feel like we aren't doing enough. I think that I would be shocked if a customer came in and started centering the conversation about their bathroom purchase around those kinds of questions. Like, I think I would be shocked, but I would be able to deal with it. I would be able to handle it well uh, because I do know enough about things. But I think it's a topic where people feel like they should say the right thing and they should appear to be doing something about it. But the reality is that nobody is actually doing anything about it. So I feel like as a company, we would know the things to say, but actually executing those things. I don't know. It's a really difficult subject matter, actually. I find it I find it to be one that we really need to learn more about. 
but I don't know. I don't know. This is why I'm quite keen to join this because I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't the only one that felt a bit out of the loop, I suppose. What about you, Sam? Do you feel out of the loop with it? Do you feel educated about the products that you're selling? How do you feel about it? I took a personal interest in it about 10 years ago, but haven't really executed anything significant in the business. And I suppose there's an element of who should take responsibility and should we rely on the consumers to drive more awareness around sustainability or my opinion would be it it should start from the manufacturers and, and work its way through the supply chain. We as a retailer should perhaps be doing more, but you know maybe that's an industry-wide thing that needs to become you know more of a standard that that ultimately the manufacturers need to do their piece and it, it needs to to filter right the way down so that when consumers come to us, all they really need to worry about is the functionality and the and the looks of it. To also get them to be thinking about the sustainability, that's just an added thing that I think it would be unreasonable for us just to expect consumers to be driving that conversation. I think we need to drive it as an industry. Right, Angus, what do you think? Is this a focus on your your own product knowledge with you and your staff? We know what the particular companies that we deal with, whether it's Coico or Dornbrack or Betty or any of these companies that have got fantastic sustainability and green credentials, we then pass that on to the end user and tell them what it's all about. But in, in all honesty, it falls upon deaf ears because if somebody wants to come in and buy a Koiko tap, they want to buy the Koiko tap or they want the look of it, the functionality of it, and the fact that it's sustainable, it really should be a given. So I, my opinion is that this comes down to the retailer The classic example I use is we are unpaid tax collectors whenever we're taking taxes or paying VAT. And this issue of educating people will fall back on the retailer to educate the end user when it shouldn't be like that. So what we seem to be saying here, Tom, is that people would make an assumption that products are sustainable. We're at that stage now where it shouldn't be an either-or choice. And the other part of that is that clearly more information should be made more readily available to the people on the front line selling it. And equally, the drive has to come directly from the consumer rather than it coming via the retailer. How does that sound to you? There's a whole mix of, of issues for me to, to kind of respond to there and, and to think about. I think it, you know, what, what's been said around the, the manufacturer responsibility is, is a, a fair point. And certainly uh, among BMA's membership, our members are are embracing the sustainability agenda. One one of our larger members this week went carbon neutral to a pass accredited standard through the Carbon Trust. So you know this is the sort of level of activity that's going on within in manufacturers. Unfortunately, there isn't a level playing field across all manufacturing because anyone can make a sustainability claim. It's actually the, the work that sits behind the claim that's the, the important thing. And whilst the Competitions Markets Authority and trading standards are starting to get more active combating so-called greenwashing, market surveillance is not robust in the slightest, whether it, we're talking about product compliance, sustainability, claims or, or anything. So there does need to be a level playing field. Credible manufacturers will do the right thing. Will all manufacturers? And, and that's the key thing. If I can pick up the the issue about providing information to the retailer and to the consumer, this is a really live topic at the moment. The the government is considering introducing mandatory water labelling with uh, the the water use, the flow rate of showers, the flush volume of toilets. 
rated and providing that via a label that possibly will be mandated, much like the, the existing energy label, to be displayed at point of sale. I'm really keen to, to understand from retailers, what are the challenges with, with putting labels up in, in your showroom and, and getting them out there in front of the consumer at point of sale? Or you know, are there preferred ways of, of displaying that information? I should say as well, bathroom manufacturers, not all of them, but many of them, particularly those in BMA membership, are already placing products on the unified water label scheme. So there's already a database where you can look up products to see what the water use is. If you were made to display either the unified water label or perhaps a new government scheme, what would be the implications for you? Well, tell you what, let's take a step back, Tom, because that's a very, very good question. But I think let's take a step back and ask who's heard of the water label? Because I think that's probably a good place to start. Justine, do you know what the water label is? Yes, I've heard of the water label. And that's exactly how I imagined it in my mind. It would be like when you buy an electrical appliance for a kitchen and you have the C, B, you know, all the ratings. But I feel like I've heard of that kind of almost by default and not through any manufacturers advising us or talking to us about it. I feel like I've probably heard of it in passing and then looked at it myself but I don't really know exactly what it is or or why no so yes and no I don't think you're alone in that Justine at all uh collectively Sam what about you do you what do you know about the unified water label very little to be honest I I know the concept of it and it it seems like it's a good idea how much impact it will have I'm not too sure and it almost needs to become a standard that we eventually we don't even need to think about there's there's just legislation in place that demands that products meet a certain criteria. So I'm not sure how much that that water label would do. Obviously, it raises some awareness. How much awareness? Not too sure. Angus, do you see the water label? Do you see it about? Would you recognise one if you saw it? No, no. We live in Scotland. We have a lot of water up here. (laughs) It comes downwards rather than through pipes, though, doesn't it? So get back to Tom's question then. As you say, the the nearest equivalent to this water label is like the energy label you'd have on an appliance, right? That's, That's fundamentally what it is. But at the moment, you're not required to display this label on products that have it. How would you feel about having to slap labels like that all over products in your showroom, and you were basically made to through legislation, how would you feel about that? How would you feel about being able to explain that to customers and being able to field those questions? And if, because what happened in the appliance industry was when they first bought the labels out, the moment they rated things as C or D, they never sold another one again because people like to th- see things that are rated as A. But if you get a big drenching shower that pours you know, a bucket of water over your head every second, that is going to have a terrible rating on a water label. So how would you feel about slapping that all over your showroom? Justine, what do you think? I think I'd be fine with it, with attaching labels to products in the showroom if we knew exactly what they were, what they are, why we've got them, how to explain them to customers and also to the staff. I think, though, that customers initially won't care about the ratings. The question they're going to ask is, is this a powerful shower? Is this a good shower? is this shower going to drench me? They're not going to care if it's rated D. I don't personally think. They're going to care more about whether that shower is is good and going to blast them or not. I mean, is that a problem, Sam? Do you think that the worse the rating, the better they see the performance, if you know what I mean? Like, if if you've got a shower that's rated D, you're going to think, oh, brilliant, that's going to get loads of water on me. It may well be that that sort of scenario where, um, you know, it has, has the opposite effect. 
But in, in terms of having having labels around the showrooms, depending on on what type of setup you've got, uh, we we like to show customers, uh, you know, fully furnished bathrooms that try to look as though you know they're in someone's home with all the the little um, soft furnishings around it. So to have product labels all over the place on on the walls and on units and on on products. It might kind of detract from that inspiration and that theatre. So I'd, I'd be keen to look at other ways we can deliver the same effect, be it having you know, legislation around the information that's provided to customers when they get a quotation or when they place an order, a pack that goes to them that explains the products and their, their water rating or energy usage. So I, th- I think in our industry, it, you have to inspire the customers and to have lots of labels everywhere might make that a slightly tougher job. What do you think, Angus? Labels all over your beautifully laid out uh, room sets? No chance. Right. I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I think at the end of the day, this goes back to the manufacturer. It's the manufacturer's responsibility to inform people what the usage will be per product. And it's not up to the retailer because everybody will come in and say, definitely, is it a powerful shower? How do I get a powerful shower? And not only that, one thing that nobody has actually mentioned is that most of these big hands grower, Axor, Dornbrack heads will only work if you deliver an absolute minimum. Most of them, the big drench heads, it could be 20 litres per minute. It's a complete juxtaposition. But it's a bit like saying, uh, again, using a car as an analogy, you're going to get a racing car, you get a Lotus, you get a, a Ferrari, but you're only going to drive that at 60 miles an hour. Who's going to buy the car? Everybody's going to buy the car. Are they going to drive it at 60 miles an hour? No, they're not. Well, there is an argument, to carry on that analogy, Angus, that you won't be able to buy a petrol car in the next 10 years. The truth is that this is coming down the line whether you like it or not, I guess. Now, what we want to avoid, I suppose, is that those big shower products, using them as, as an example, end up getting banned. You are unable to sell them because of the amount of water they use. I suppose that comes back to manufacturers, Tom, to create products that give the same experience without using that much water. And because it's not just water, it's also the, the, the energy to heat the water as well is the issue, of course. I'm pleased to say that a couple of weeks ago, uh, I spent a week out on the road meeting with different manufacturers and they were showing me some of their product innovations and there's some outstanding stuff going on. There are kind of luxury spa showers that operate at a much lower flow rate now. Not necessarily uh, uniform across the whole sector, but those products are coming through. So there, there should be a, a level of reassurance there. The, the product ban is a, a really interesting point, Andrew, and that is something that's been talked about. The, the language differs. Historically, manufacturers have called, the, called it backstops, and the, the government called them minimum performance standards. Effectively, whatever language you use, they amount to banning products over a certain flow rate. And that is something which has been being actively explored within government and they may well consult on that next year and retailers should should have their say in that consultation we don't know where they're they're suggesting that the the axe may fall but if a higher flow rate product say over 13 liters which is the the red banded product on the the existing unified water label what implications are there for retailers certainly manufacturers are resistant to any product bans because we want to ensure consumers have choice and that we allow mandatory water labeling to work in providing consumers with the the information to make informed choices so we feel quite resistant to the the banning of products is that a view that's shared across our channel partners elsewhere in the sector 
one of the options here is not talking about sustainability at all, if you know what I mean. So for you, Justine, for example, if you talk to your customers about if they've got a water meter, how they could save money on their water meter, if they could save money on their energy because it doesn't use as much hot water and therefore, you know, they could save money on their bills that way and bills are going up every day at the moment. Is that a way into talking about this without talking about saving the planet and orangutans and polar bears? Yeah, 100%. There are always ways that we could do training with our staff, for example. We could educate ourselves in order to have marginal gains on sustainability i think that we could have an in when you when it comes to things like that however i don't think a lot of our customers that are buying a luxury bathroom so they could potentially so a lot of our customers they might come in they've just moved into a house they may have a completely adequate working bathroom even a nice new bathroom but it doesn't meet their personal style or personal taste so already we're faced with someone that's got a a decent amount of money that's prepared to remove good products in order to replace them with things that they prefer the look of or that meets their personal home style and taste. I think if I was then to sit down with that type of customer and say, oh, how about reducing your water bill? I don't really think they're going to care that much because they're potentially spending 30, 40, 50,000 pound on a luxury bathroom. You know, I don't think that they're going to engage in that type of conversation enough for it to be effective there is an issue in our industry in general that it's not a very eco-focused industry you know we like I'm renovating my own house at the moment and I'm not trying to reuse and recycle anything that I don't like aesthetically and I never get customers that are open to reusing things you know when they buy in luxury purchase so I think it's just I just, I don't know, I, I can't seem to marry the two concepts in my mind in order to know how I can deal with my customers and how my staff can deal with their customers in return. Would you echo that, Sam? Would you, is that an issue you face as well, do you think, in this? Yeah, so I think that um, the average customer is so focused on their project, their, their wants and needs, it really just doesn't come into conversation, and nor should it really. I think to the earlier points, it's higher up the chain that these changes need to be made. And, you know, in new build regulations, there's been a movement towards water usage. I mean, that's been, that's been going for a number of years now, and councils have seemed like they're only accepting applications for, for certain renovations subject to meeting new build regulations. So maybe that just needs to become legislations around all sorts of renovation. Would you concur with all this, Angus, that it's going to be very difficult to turn the customer away from wanting what they want? Definitely. That's when they would probably dig their heels in and say, no, no, I hear what you're saying, but this is what I want. I think so much of this is about education, Tom, isn't it? Part of it is about you could save 50% of your water usage by having a shower for five minutes rather than 10. So much of this is a personal choice. Unlike, for example, a washing machine where you have fixed cycles on it, and so therefore it is very easily controllable by the manufacturer, so much of this is about personal choice. What's clear about all this to me is that there's still a lot of work to be done by the manufacturers in getting the message across about efficiency and about performance, about getting across who's responsible for educating the consumer. Is it the retailer or is it the manufacturer? I suspect the answer is both, of course. And really, there's a lot of work to be done on getting the retailer to understand much more about this as an issue and particularly things like water labels, which might become mandatory. 
yeah, I think we've, we've all got a role to play in, in raising awareness of sustainability issues and uh, certainly manufacturers wouldn't shy away from, from their responsibilities in this. I think Angus is absolutely right in emphasising the importance of user behaviours um, because you can provide the most efficient shower in the world at kind of six litres per minute, but if someone's in it for twice or three times as long as they're in a kind of more water inefficient shower actually the total water use won't be much different in fact in fact it could be worse and there is some research which has identified that it's not a linear relationship between flow rate and total water use it's it's a more complicated relationship and correlation there on the responsibilities for raising awareness of this manufacturers have have placed their products on the unified water label perhaps we need to do more to communicate exactly what that means to both our channel partners and the consumer. And uh, that's a, a, a good kind of challenge and, and gauntlet to, to throw down. I mean, the other parties that are involved in this, of course, are the, the water industry and the utilities. We have done some research on some of these ideas, policy ideas that the government are mooting at the moment. And we found that the fiercest opposition to introducing bans on higher flow rate products, interestingly, correlate with the water scarce areas where the water authorities have been messaging of come pleading with people to use less water which was a really interesting phenomenon that we identified in in this this recent polling clearly the messaging is not right and we need to think differently about how we try to persuade the the user to uh, to change their behaviors and and adopt more sustainable practices but it clearly isn't all the responsibility of product it isn't all the responsibility of retailers. There's a huge education piece that clearly we're not getting the lessons right yet. Well, look, I mean, we could talk about this all day, couldn't we? Because it's such a difficult subject. But I think it'd be really interesting to kind of revisit this perhaps in, a, in you know, six months, a year's time and see whether it's moved on, see whether you feel more confident. And given that there's so much conversation going on about it in the media, on the news, whether people do start asking for it more in their purchases. For now, thank you so much, everybody, for your time. As I say, a really interesting subject that will run and run. Thank you so much. Now that was a proper packed episode with so much to think about. A huge thank you to Elizabeth Pantling-Jones, to Sam Colwell, Justine Bullock, Angus Kerr and Tom Reynolds. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, don't forget to book your tickets for the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2022. It's on March the 7th. It's at the Hilton Birmingham Metropole and that's the Monday night of the KBB show. And you can get all the info at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. See you next time.